welcome. Good morning. I'm Tim, one of the pastors here, and so glad you're with us at North Suburban Church this morning. Maybe you visited one of those churches um, where they like to say, hey, this isn't your grandmother's church. Here at North Sub, uh, we may have a young staff, but even so, we're happy to say this is your grandmother's church. Uh, and that's not at all to demean churches who distance themselves from tradition. Those are our brothers and sisters. We pray for them, and they are doing important work around our area. But we actually think that it's important that we keep this your grandmother's church, uh, at least in some ways. Here's what I mean. In a world that's obsessed with chasing the latest fad, the church is meant to be stable, steady, enduring, constant. That's why we recited words from the fifth century. That's why we sing songs that Christians have been singing for four or five hundred years. While scripture never calls us to invent a bold new mission necessarily, it does call us to guard the good deposit that was entrusted to us. And that passing along of the good deposit involves a series of handoffs, generation to generation, that stretches all the way back to the apostles. So while we do seek to articulate that good deposit in fresh new ways for each generation and cultural context, we're never called to alter it, and we're never called to improve upon it. And so we're here at Northside, we're not attempting to alter it or to improve upon it. Uh, what's cool today won't be cool tomorrow. So that's why I think many of you have found it refreshing that we're not chasing cool, but rather are working to stay anchored to something ancient, something true, something deep. And you're joining us this morning at a, at a moment, to a season in our church's life where God's really at work here. And so we're glad you're able to be a part of it with us. Let's pray. Lord, you're big and you love us, and that makes us glad. Now let the words that I say, let the thoughts that we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake. Amen. It's almost like conversations about faith with friends here uh, in this area are so different than they were with people in Florida, where we used to live, that they somehow become strangely similar. They're so far apart. For example, when I initiated faith conversations with friends in Florida, I would never ask people if they were Christians because... In that cultural context, the question, are you a Christian, was understood to mean something like, does your family go to church? And so just about everyone would answer yes, whether they personally believed any of it or not. Northbrook, where our family happens to live now, is pretty far on the other end of the weekly church attendance spectrum from what North Central Florida was. Uh, so you'd think maybe that asking someone if they're a Christian might be a more meaningful question. What I've learned is that, at least in my neighborhood, the question, are you a Christian, is often understood to mean something like, are you non-Jewish? Like, in other words, it's, it's assumed to be a heritage question. There are some people in the neighborhood who celebrate Hanukkah, and we call them Jewish. There are other people in the neighborhood who celebrate Christmas, and we call them Christians. So I still don't actually ask people if they're Christian. Uh, my favorite go-to spiritual question that I started asking in Florida and still ask here is this. What do you think about Jesus? 
What do you think about him? The first time I was asked that question by somebody I didn't know, uh, I was sort of taken aback in a good way by how interesting it was as a conversation starter. It's different from being asked if I'm a Christian or what religion I grew up with or whether I go to church. What, what do I think about Jesus? According to our scripture text today, what we think about Jesus matters a whole lot. Would you turn with me to 1 John chapter 2? 1 John chapter 2, we'll pick up in verse 20. This is the fourth of five weeks we're spending in this short letter called 1 John. It's toward the end of your Bible. If you're looking for it, you'll want to follow along with us because we're going to be jumping around. It's, it's written by one of Jesus' closest disciples a few decades after Jesus' death and resurrection. We're taking these five thematic passes at 1 John as a whole as a way of closing out our You Are Here series in which since January we've been seeking to take inventory regarding where, where we stand with God, both individually and as a congregation. So I don't, I don't know. I, I don't know how you've experienced this series since January. Uh, maybe some are looking forward to its conclusion in a couple weeks because all this black and white talk about who's in and who's out isn't your style, maybe. Maybe you're more comfortable in the gray of a book like Ecclesiastes or a book like Job, where things are more nuanced, where they're less stark, more complex, or less bright red lines drawn. Quick note, if that's you, you're on to something important, namely that there is much more to the Bible than the black and white distinctions of 1 John, right? We have to read 1 John in light of the whole counsel of God, found from Genesis to Revelation, where there's so many different genres and styles and emphases across centuries and different authors. That said, 1 John is good for, for, for stiffening up our backbones a little bit. Part of its role in the Bible, I think, is to make sure we don't get too squishy, right? So without 1 John and a handful of other writings like it, some of us today, more than ever, might be tempted to think of Christianity as though it were a faith that advocated just unbounded questioning and exploration, as though who's to say what's true and what isn't. Here's how D.A. Carson says it. Uh, Precisely because our age thinks that ambiguity and relativism, the gray, that that's a sign of intellectual and even moral maturity. Our age thinks that's good. It's intellectual and moral maturity. John's immovable tests are the more necessary as we seek to construct inductively shaped biblical theology. There are three of these immovable tests uh, that John puts forward in very black and white terms. There's an obedience test, there's a belief test, and a love test, or we might call them the ethical test, the doctrinal test, and the social test. And unless we start thinking of these three as separate entities, as though I maybe could pass one of the three but fail two of the three, or vice versa, John actually presents them all as, as linked to each other. Belief produces obedience, and the main form of obedience in John's letter is love. But love comes from the God who loves, so that requires some belief in this God who showed his love for us in the death of Jesus on the cross. So all three depend on each other and therefore work together as one. Last week we looked at the obedience test. Today we poke around at the belief test. So the belief test, what do I think about Jesus? I'm about to read several passages in 1 John that deal with belief in Christ. And as I'm reading, I want to invite you to follow along with me and ask yourself that very question as we're reading. What do I think 
about Jesus. So first, we're going to start in chapter 2, verses 20 to 25. We're going to read a few different sections, though. 1 John 2.20, But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar, if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. What you have heard from the beginning is to remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. Skip ahead to chapter 4, verse 1. Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see if they're from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. This is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. But every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming even now. It is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and you have conquered them because the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They, the false teachers, are from the world. Therefore, what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Anyone who knows God listens to us. Anyone who is not from God does not listen to us. This is how we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of deception. Later in the chapter, verse 13. This is how we know that we remain in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent his Son as the world's Savior. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. Last one, chapter 5, starting with verse 1. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. And skipping down to verse 5. Who is the one who conquers the world but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Jesus Christ. He's the one who came by water and blood. Not by water only, but by water and by blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify spirit, the water, and the blood, and these three are in agreement. If we accept human testimony, God's testimony is greater because it's God's testimony that he has given about his son. The one who believes in the son of God has this testimony within himself. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar because he's not believed in the testimony God has given about his son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his son. The one who has the son has life. The one who does not have the Son of God does not have life. I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. We'll spend our next 25 minutes or so looking, working our way through much of what we just read, asking three questions. First, what is the belief test, so to speak? Uh, why is belief in Jesus a valid test of our relationship with God? And what if I'm not sure whether I pass belief test those three questions first what is the belief test in other words what are the minimum non-negotiables 
I need to believe about Jesus in order to be confirmed in my confidence that I actually belong to him? Well, if we start with 1 John 1.1 and read to the end of the letter, I think what we'll find is that John's answer is something like this. I've attempted to summarize it here. The test is, do we believe that Jesus is the Messiah, come in the flesh, the Son of God, sent by the Father as the world's Savior? The Messiah, come in the flesh, the Son of God, sent by the Father as the world's Savior. Let me show you that piece by piece. First, the Messiah. You may know that Christ isn't Jesus' last name. It is the Greek word that translates the Hebrew word Messiah. So check it out, verse 1 of chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ, Jesus is the Messiah, has been born of God. Uh, the Christian believes that Jesus is the anointed one. That's what Messiah means. Foretold in the scriptures, the one Israel was waiting for, and by extension, the one that the whole world was waiting for. But he's the Messiah who came in the flesh. According to chapter 4, verse 2, this is how you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. So there's no room for the Christian to entertain ideas that Jesus only seemed to be human or that the Christ figure is merely an idea, a principle for us to aspire to. No, no, he, he came in human flesh. Yet, he's the Son of God. That's the third piece of it unique among the great religious figures of history because to claim to be the Son of God is to claim divinity. Take a look at verse 15 of chapter 4. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him and he in God. Chapter 5, verse 5. Who's the one who conquers the world but the one who believes Jesus is the Son of God? In other words, if we were to think of Jesus merely as the best human ever to live, but not as God, We'd be thinking sub-Christianly. And finally, he's sent by the Father as the world's Savior. Uh, so his coming in the flesh wasn't that he was bored and just thought, hey, why not? It was ascending. It was the result of ascending by another, his heavenly Father. And, and not just to set an example of the good life, but to be the world's Savior, to rescue us by dying in our place. That's what chapter 4, verse 14 says. So... Jesus is the Messiah, come in the flesh, the Son of God, sent by the Father as the world's Savior. And those who belong to him believe this, according to John in this letter. Contrast those who don't believe this. Right? In his community, John calls some who teach about Jesus in a way that's contrary to this. He calls them antichrists. Take a look again. Who is a liar if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one's the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. Right? In chapter 2 and chapter 4, that stark black and white contrast suggests that John intends for this belief test that we're looking at today to be helpful in two directions. First, positively, to confirm the assurance experienced by the believer. So if you and I believe in this, we should feel assured as we leave here today. And secondly, negatively, to distinguish beliefs that put someone outside the camp, so to speak. Right. As such, if I were to go around teaching that Jesus was merely human, merely a great moral teacher, though not the divine Messiah sent by the Father as the world's Savior, John's assessment would be that I'm a liar, driven unknowingly or unknowingly by the spirit of the Antichrist. Right. Here's a question I had, though, while looking at this. Uh, 
why do these particular beliefs about God make John's list and not any others? For example, what about Jesus rose from the dead? Right? Uh, doesn't Paul treat that as of first importance in 1 Corinthians 15? Or, or what about Jesus is Lord? We don't see that in 1 John as a qualifying test. Doesn't Paul make that the litmus test, though, in Romans 10.9? If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord, you'll be saved. Uh, so why does John say that the measuring stick is whether or not someone can affirm that Jesus is the Messiah come in the flesh, the Son of God sent by the Father as the world's Savior? D.A. Carson helped me on this question with two important observations. First, John's essentials about Jesus aren't arbitrary. Right? Every aspect of this summary sentence is treated by other New Testament authors as of first importance. It's, in, it's on other lists as well, on, on the top of their lists. But on the flip side, we have to remember that John's words here are written to a specific situation. Right? He highlights these aspects of Jesus' identity and does leave out others that are maybe just as important because these are the ones that differentiate true teachers in his context from the particular group of secessionists, we call them, these false teachers that he's warning his particular readers about. So it is situation-specific to a sense, but it's not arbitrary, right? Such that if John were to write to a different group of people who are missing the mark in a different way, it's possible we might see slight alterations in what he chose to include in his list of essential beliefs about Jesus. He might add something to it. Right? Now, if this is situation-specific to some degree, if it's not meant to be an exhaustive list about what's essential to be, believe about Jesus, what's the significance of this? A doctrinal test like this today for us. There are a few possible answers to that question, but for the sake of time, I just want to offer one reflection on this doctrinal test uh, before we move on. That's this. In an era in which many professing Christians seem to care more about many secondary issues than they care about this. John's belief test reminds us which beliefs really matter most. Here's what I mean. Let's take a little quiz. You ready? Uh, three questions with three answer choices each. Okay, uh, Which would make you most upset if you heard me say it in a Sunday morning sermon. Not which of these is right, which is wrong. Which would make you most upset of the three if you heard it in a Sunday morning sermon? Okay, ready? First question. <laughs> what if I said critical race theorists make some compelling points? On the other side, what if I said critical race theory has too much influence on our educational system? Or option C, Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three different aspects of the one person we call God. Which of those would just really start to get your blood boiling a little bit? Second question. Don't answer as yet. <laughs> what if I said LGBTQ people deserve protections under the law? On the other side, what if I said transgender women shouldn't be able to participate in women's sports? Or option C, or question two. What if I said we're rescued from the justice and wrath of the Old Testament God by the mercy and grace of the New Testament Jesus? Which would make you most upset? Question three. What if I said there was a Christian argument for voting Biden in 2020? 
Or what if I said, here's a Christian argument for voting Trump in 2020? Or option C, what if I said, Jesus emptied himself of his divinity while he lived on earth? What do you say? Let's look back. Maybe A is right, maybe it's wrong. Maybe B is right, maybe it's wrong. But C is literally a heresy on a matter of first importance, right? This is called uh, the modalist heresy. Uh, and the problem here is it denies that the Father, Son, and Spirit are three persons and thus relate to each other in love. And so if Father, Son, and Spirit are not separate persons, they can't be in relationship with one another and the foundation for our faith falls apart. Question two, maybe A is right, maybe it's wrong. Maybe B is right, maybe it's wrong in your opinion. But C is literally a heresy and a matter of first importance, right? It's a heresy called Marcionism. And it denies that father and son are of the same substance. The son is the exact representation of the nature of the one God. So faith falls apart if C is true. Last question, maybe A is right, maybe it's wrong. Maybe B is right, maybe it's wrong. But C is literally a heresy and a matter of first importance. Jesus emptied himself of a lot of things on earth, but this is the canonic heresy that Jesus emptied himself of his divinity. If Jesus wasn't fully divine when he lived and died, it would render his sacrifice unable to save us. He could maybe save one other individual by standing in their place, but his life has to be worth more than all of our lives in order to, for his death to be effective for all of us. In other words, on all three questions, whatever we thought about answer choices A and B, and there's a variety of opinions in this room, let me promise you that. Uh, they're matters of secondary importance in which there is legitimate disagreement among real Christians. Right? If anything was supposed to elevate our heart rate, it was answer choice C's, right? On each of the three questions, those are heresies that if taught, put hearers in danger of believing a different gospel. If I was teaching you those things, I would be putting your soul in danger by luring you into false teaching that would maybe cause you to miss the gospel for a different gospel. But in too many churches, it's, it's the A's and the B's that make people's skin crawl. Right? Because in too many American churches, political allegiance has effectively become people's real religion. Who cares if my pastor's preaching heresy as long as he sounds like my favorite cable news channel? So reading 1 John can be a reminder in the year 2022. Oh yeah, to be a Christian means I'll care more deeply about the C's than I do about the A's and B's. Right? Not to say the A's and B's are unimportant or that, they're, or that the A's and B's are morally equivalent. I'm not saying that at all. It's just to say that our first allegiance must be to Christ. And our most deeply held beliefs must be those that we hold about him. Amen? Second, why is belief in Jesus a valid test? Look at the language of chapter 4, verse 15, for example. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God remains in him, and he in God. How can John say this so starkly, so definitively? I mean, there are Jewish people today, like there were in John's day, and there are devout Muslims today who earnestly believe in God, but who don't happen to confess Jesus as Son of God. Is John saying that those sincere religious people are excluded? On what basis does their unbelief in Jesus rule them out from God being in them and them being in him? Let's think it through. 
if we wanted to make the case that there was another way to God, we'd be saying it's possible to have the Father without the Son. But look again about what John says about the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. He who confesses the Son has the Father as well. That's 2.23. And then in 5.1, everyone who loves the Father also loves the one born of him. And this isn't John's own idea, right? John is the one who records the same idea on the lips of Jesus in his gospel. In chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But we still haven't really answered the why. Why couldn't there be another way to the Father apart from the Son? Why does rejecting the Son necessarily exclude me from relationship with the Father? There's a theological answer to that question that deals with access to the Father and a need for a mediator who's both human and divine and otherwise remain cut off from a holy God because of our sin. John alludes to that in chapter 2, verse 2, when he says that he's Jesus' atoning sacrifice for our sins. We've looked at that the last two weeks. But it's not just that Jesus did that. It's also that God told us that Jesus did that. Take a look at chapter 5, verse 10. The one who does not believe God, and he's talking about believe God about Jesus, has made God a liar because he has not believed in the testimony God has given about his son. In other words, if God has spoken from heaven, saying, here's who Jesus is, believe in him, and then we don't believe in Jesus, we're not just rejecting Jesus now. We're actually also rejecting what God said about Jesus and thereby rejecting God himself. In other words, because the Father put it all on the line, with his declaration about who his son is, it's just an impossibility to reject the son without also rejecting the father. And note that that's fundamentally different from every other major world religion, right? Christianity is the only one in which God testifies, directing our attention not primarily to the messenger's message, but to the messenger himself. You can have Buddhism without the Buddha, as long as you preserve the Buddha's message. You can have Islam without Muhammad as long as you preserve Muhammad's message. In other words, in those religions, the messenger is secondary to the message. Here's the way to live. Christianity is the opposite. Our faith was never centered on the message of Christ, as important as that is and was, but always on the person of Christ. Consequently, the most important question this morning is not, what have you done with Christ's message? But rather, what have you done with Christ? And so in close analysis, we realize that these truths that John tells us about Jesus, they're far from from incidental. When he says Jesus is the Messiah come in the flesh, the Son of God sent by the Father as the world's Savior, uh, we only have access to the Father if these things about Jesus are true. If he is who he says, who John says he was. So... I wonder if anyone finds it odd this morning that we're drawing this, this bright red line and assigning people, apparently, to this side of the line and, and implying that there are people who are on this side of the line, right? When Christians, aren't Christians supposed to love each other? Aren't Christians supposed to love? I mean, great, this is the belief test, so to speak. But remember, next week, Pastor Sean will be preaching the love test, it's called, from this same letter. Namely, if you don't love, you don't belong to Christ. So the question I'm asking now is, how could it possibly be loving 
to engage in this sort of black and white, who's in and who's out type of talk. Don't we all have dear Jewish friends and family, for example, who maybe would say they know God, but who haven't yet placed their faith in Christ? How can we say we love them if we tell them they have to believe what we believe about Jesus? Yeah, John can say in this same letter both things. He can say, no one who denies the Son has the Father, he who confesses the Son has the Father as well. Drawing a line in the sand, right? And he can say, the one who does not love does not know God, because God is love. How can you say both? This seems unloving. And now you're saying we have to love. Here's one commentator's conclusion as he reflects on this tension. Love, as John understands it, is apparently not indiscriminate affirmation, but discerning devotion. Not indiscriminate affirmation, but discerning devotion. Did you catch that? According to today's world, you only love me if you affirm everything about me. But first John advocates love to the nth degree. It talks about love on every page, right? Over and over and over again. Love, love, love. While refusing to affirm what's not true. So we might say that real love, Christ-like love, is to be differentiated from the squishy automatic affirmation that passes as love today. In fact, if, if you truly love me, I'd say that your love will require you not to affirm the untruth and sin that does exist in me. And there's plenty of it, by the way. Do not affirm that if you love me. The last thing I need is for you to affirm that within me, which will harm me. Your affirmation could cause me to stay stuck in it. Now, of course, people in every generation are tempted, though, to seek out others who would give us that unquestioning affirmation that masquerades as love, right? John talks about it in chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. When people say things from the world, the world listens to them. Right? Instead of listening to those who speak from God, and of course they do. They don't know that it's the spirit of deception. Right? The sort of love that refuses to acknowledge the bright red lines that God draws is an easier love, quote, unquote, to swallow. Yet the truth remains, whether we embrace it or not, we simply can't have the Father without the Son. We can't. Finally, what if I'm not sure whether I pass the belief test? For, any, for many of us this morning, after looking at the belief test, it's now clear to us whether we pass the test. Either, A, you know for sure that you'd affirm what John says really matters, that Jesus is the Messiah come in the flesh, the Son of God sent by the Father as the world's Savior. You're all in on that. You might even tack on, yeah, and I also believe Jesus is Lord and that he was raised from the dead. And as such, you now know that you passed this test. You will walk out of here today fully assured. Praise God. That's just what John would have wanted. He wrote this, remember, so that you and I would be more confident walking out of here today than we were walking in, that we belong to God. The anointing of his Holy Spirit has guided us into the truth in the words of chapter 2. <laughs> but maybe there's a second group here. Uh, maybe you know for sure that you would actually reject John's claim about Jesus, that he's the Messiah come in the flesh, the Son of God sent by the Father as the world's Savior. You're in a place this morning where you're kind of in a settled conviction that that is not true, or some aspect of that is not true. 
It's something you actively disbelieve. In that case, if nothing were to change, you too could leave here with certainty, namely a certainty that until you accept Jesus, you do stand as someone who rejects God. And maybe that's your intention, maybe it's not, right? Either way, love requires us to share with you what was once shared with each of us, that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. But I think there's probably a third group here this morning, besides those who wholeheartedly believe or wholeheartedly disbelieve these claims about Jesus. Maybe you're in this third group with regards to this statement here, this belief test. And you say, hey, well, I, I think I want the mutual indwelling that's promised in chapter 4, verses 13 and 15, that I would remain in God and God in me. It sounds nice, but I'm just not sure. Sometimes I, I do have doubts about Jesus. So do I have that sort of relationship with God? Or do my persistent doubts disqualify me? Or, or another shade on that, maybe, is the person who says, hey, I, I want the sort of anointing that will guide me into the truth, like chapter 2 said, but sometimes I realize I've fallen for stuff that just isn't true. So do I have that anointing of the Holy Spirit? I hope I do, but is it possible I've been gullible and brought into a, 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 under the hold of a different kind of spirit? That's what the first six verses of chapter 4 talk about. So you're unsure, in other words, of whether you've believed this sufficiently and therefore whether you pass the test and can be assured in your faith in Christ. Two reflections for the person who is unsure whether they believe this about Jesus. One, that there's a possibility held out in Scripture of significant and even prolonged doubt in the life of the true believer. You got John the Baptist, who Jesus calls the greatest born of a woman. And after being stuck in jail for a while, what does John say? Hey, Jesus, I was telling everybody that you're the Messiah, but now I'm not quite so sure. Are you? You've got some of the greatest preachers and ministers in history who went through long periods of inner darkness in which they weren't totally sure what they believed anymore. I share those examples to help us reject the lie that the enemy would love to plant in our minds, namely, if you have any doubts about Jesus, God's done with you. You don't belong to him if you've got doubts. Those words are from the pit of hell, friends. Our, our doubts don't disqualify us. Right? Even our significant or prolonged doubts, necessarily, God wants us to bring our doubts to him, not to bury them down as though they don't exist. That's the first reflection. Just because you have doubts doesn't mean that you don't pass this belief test. It's all about the kind of doubts you have and what you do with them. Second reflection, it's wise to let the nature of your doubt shape what you do with it. So just use three examples. Sometimes we doubt for intellectual reasons. We hear an argument we hadn't heard before and don't know how to answer it. It causes some doubt in our minds. Sometimes we doubt for moral reasons. I've started nurturing a secret sin. And it's easier to justify my actions if I can find a way mentally to discard with a certain inconvenient belief about Jesus that gets in the way of doing what I want to do. Right, so there's really a moral thing at the root of that. 
And third, sometimes we doubt because we've been hurt. Someone who believed doctrine X really mistreated us. So how could doctrine X be true? Those are just three of many sources of doubt. We could give eight or nine. But the medicine for each source is very different. So for the intellectual hang-up, if you hear the argument that you don't know how to answer, the prescription involves seeking out answers. Don't remain unsure what you think about Jesus. There's no more important question in the world to sort out than the one, what do you think about Jesus? Set aside the time. Do your research. Explore. For the moral hang-up, when it's my sin that's causing my doubts, the prescription involves turning from sin to Jesus. No, he won't affirm my actions just because they're authentic to me and who I deeply feel myself to be. But he knows the sort of life that will lead to my true flourishing. And third, for the pain hang-up, when I've been hurt, the prescription involves remembering that Christianity is bigger than any Christian. When Judas betrayed Jesus after doing three years of ministry with him, it's interesting that we don't see the other 11 disciples walk away like, well, if Judas was a fake, then... I can't believe this anymore. No, for the other 11, it was always about Jesus. Listen, people are going to fall away and sin massively. Leaders, mentors you looked up to will fall away. The older you get, the more of it will happen. Jesus told us that they would. So without minimizing in any way how absolutely crushing that is, when our spiritual heroes fall, the question always has been, and always will be, what do you think about Jesus? Our big idea today is this. May our blood-bought assurance be confirmed as we affirm Jesus as Messiah, Son of God, sent by the Father and Savior of the world. May our blood-bought assurance be confirmed as we affirm Jesus as Messiah, the Son of God, sent by the Father, Savior of the world. Despite what my friends in Florida thought, a Christian isn't somebody who goes to church. Despite what some who live in this area might think, Christian isn't the catch-all label for anyone who celebrates Christmas and Easter instead of Hanukkah or Ramadan. When it comes down to it, one of the minimum evidences that someone does truly belong to Christ is that he or she believes that He's the Messiah, the Son of God sent by the Father as Savior of the world. In the end, like C.S. Lewis reasoned half a century ago, there are really only three possibilities regarding who Jesus is. A person who claims to be the Son of God and Savior of the world, like Jesus does, can only really be one of three things. He could be a liar who knows he's blowing smoke, but makes the claims anyway in, in, in order to intentionally deceive people. He could be a lunatic, right, who genuinely believes that he's the son of God and savior of the world, but he's hopelessly mistaken. He's crazy. Or third, he is who he says he is, which makes him Lord. Liar, lunatic, Lord. There's, there's really no fourth option. Like maybe I think he was a good man and profound moral teacher. Jesus himself removed that option from us. When he said things like, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. Those aren't the words of a good teacher. If not true, those are crazy words, if not sheer evil words, right? What if they are true, and he's Lord? 
if you're here this morning and you haven't yet believed that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, sent by the Father as Savior of the world, sincere question. What exactly is between you and affirming this? I'll tell you, I'd love nothing more than to sit down with you for coffee in the coming weeks and hear you share your hesitations, your questions. Please let me know if you'll take me up on that offer. I'd love that. If you'll just open your heart to the possibility, I, th I think what you'll find is that from the very beginning, God has been weaving together a story meant to culminate in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus the Messiah. And now his Holy Spirit may be pulling at your heart to receive him. If you're here this morning and you do believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God sent by the Father, the Savior of the world, take heart. You do dwell in God, and God does dwell in you. Not because you earned his indwelling by getting your theological ducks in a row. No, no, no. But rather because this belief that you hold is evidence that you have opened up your hand in faith to receive his gift of salvation. So I ask once more, what do you think about Jesus? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you didn't leave us in our sin, in our rebellion, but you sent your son to reconcile us to yourself, to bring us back to you again, to shed his own blood so that the price that we owed could be paid. I pray for the person here this morning who hasn't yet accepted that offer, and I pray that you would just not let them go, that you'd tug at their heart relentlessly to an annoying degree until they recognize the love that you have for them and surrender to you and find the joy in life that so many of us have found in you. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, you keep hearing us say, and you'll continue to hear us say, that here at North Sub, we understand ourselves to just be a bunch of beggars trying to help other beggars find bread. And, and as such, we, we care about the people in our lives who haven't yet found the life that we've found in Christ. We, we kind of feel like it would be the height of selfishness not to want that for others who haven't yet experienced it, to withhold it from them, to not try everything we can to share it with them. And so we're going to take a few minutes right now, actually, to just pray for people in each of our lives whom we want to see experience the life in Christ that we have found. Now, if you haven't yet put your faith in Christ, feel free, totally free, not to participate in this part of the service, sit, listen. If you have believed in Christ, though, we're going to spend a few minutes experimenting with something. We're going to try to pray in a way that's maybe more common in other parts of the world than it is here. It's a form of prayer that has enjoyed seasons of widespread practice in Korea and in other places. Uh, what we're going to do is we're going to actually pray out loud all at once. Maybe uncomfortable with some of us, but we're going to let our voices rise up to God in unison as an offering to him. It'll just be for a minute or two, but the invitation is for each of us to pray quietly. We're not shouting it out, but, but out loud, though, with our voice. By name, for people that we know who haven't yet found Christ, like a vocal offering of prayer, a chorus being lifted up to him as we, as we lift these names of these people, these names that represent people that we dearly, dearly love to God. Uh, praying for their souls, praying that he'd pursue them, and praying for opportunities that we might have to share with them. So 
We'll begin now, and then I will close us in just a minute. Let's pray. for all these individuals and for others whom we love, those in our families, our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers, um, who haven't yet found the life that we've found in you, the rescue that we've found in you, we do pray for them, not because we're better than them, just the opposite, uh, because we're some of the worst, and yet we found your mercy to be abundant. We pray that you'd give us courage and wisdom in sharing with those in our lives and we pray that you would draw them to yourself and give us cause to celebrate as we get to see them experience the life that we have found in jesus name amen